Hello, and welcome to True Crime Sleep Stories, where you can settle in with a good true crime tale while drifting off into a safe, sleepy slumber. Maybe you want to sip on a cup of hot tea, grab a warm blanket, or cozy up by the fire. Whatever you decide to do, just make sure you're comfortable and ready for relaxation. I'm your host, Kelly Barons Brink, and before we get started tonight, I want to remind you that as a Patreon member, you'll get even more sinister, sleepy content because you get multiple versions of each and every true crime sleep story. Patrons will have access to an ad-free version so you can really relax without the distraction of advertisements. You'll get both audio and video versions as well. There's a lot of value in your Patreon membership, and best of all, you're supporting the show. You can go to patreon.com slash truecrimesleepstories to get started. And now it's time to get comfy, because I'm going to tell you a bedtime story. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In 1912 in Villisca, Iowa, The Moore family was considered affluent in their small community, and they were very well-liked. Josiah, age 43, was married to Sarah, 39, and together they had a beautiful, happy family with their four children, Herman, 11, Mary Catherine, 10, Arthur Boyd, 7, and the youngest, Paul Vernon, just five years old. On the evening of June 9th, 1912, the Moore family was attending a fun Children's Day program at their church, and this was a big deal in their town. Sarah was very involved with their church, and she had helped organize this event. Lots of people were going to be there, including their good friends, the Stillinger family. 12-year-old Lena Stillinger and 8-year-old Ina Stillinger were good friends with the only Moore daughter, 10-year-old Mary Catherine, who went by her middle name, just Catherine. The church event wasn't scheduled to end until about 10 p.m. that evening, and the little Stillinger girls were apprehensive to walk in the dark the two miles they'd needed to trek home. The walk home would have been especially dark for the little girls on this particular night, because the electric company and the Villisca Town Council were in the midst of a dispute about lighting. So the electric company shut off all the lights in the town, coincidentally on this particular day, making the town extra dark. The Moors arranged sleepover plans with the Stillingers, and Lena and Ina accompanied the family of six to their East 2nd Street home after church services ended. I can imagine how delighted the six young children would have been after a festive church event organized especially for kids, and with the added excitement of having friends sleeping over. 
their small farmhouse would most likely be bustling with activity, laughter, and joy, which makes what happened in the overnight hours all the more heartbreaking. Bedtime would have come a little later than usual this evening, with not arriving home until around 10 p.m. and having guests, so we can assume that all the kiddos were tucked in and sleeping by around 11 p.m. with JB and Sarah right behind them. Lena and Ina Stillinger slept downstairs in the main floor guest bedroom. Up the steep staircase and just to the left was JB and Sarah's bedroom. Just past that was the bedroom that the four more children shared. In between the two bedrooms was a small door that led into an attic storage space, and this is where it's thought that someone may have been waiting, hiding, and lurking until everyone in the house was fast asleep. The murders are thought to have happened sometime after midnight through the early morning hours. Doctors estimate the time of death as somewhere shortly after midnight. An unknown person entered the Moore's home, first killing JB and Sarah Moore. They were bludgeoned to death with an axe, leaving their faces unrecognizable. The killer seemed to have managed to murder the adults without waking up the children, so it seems as though he worked very quickly and very quietly. He then walked into the next bedroom, murdering the four more children, the youngest, just five years old. The killer may have thought his work was done now, and he went back after the Moors were dead to further desecrate their bodies, hitting them over and over again with the axe until their faces were basically gone. The furious axe swings left scrapes and indentations in the walls and ceilings which can still be seen in the house today. After brutally attacking this family, he went one by one and covered each person's head with clothing to cover their mutilated faces. And with the Moore family gone, the killer went downstairs to wash his hands in a bowl of water and have a snack. But what it seems as though he didn't know is that there were two young children still alive and sleeping on the main floor. But we'll get to that in just a moment. We first need to explore why we thought this killer was waiting in the attic for the family to go to sleep. First of all, there were cigarettes in the attic that someone had recently smoked. Nobody in the house was known to smoke. So... We have to ask, was J.B. Moore a closet smoker who hid his habit from his wife, or was the killer smoking as he hid in wait? Here's why the killer in the attic story makes sense. The killer may have known that the Moors were at church until later in the evening. He could have entered the house through the usually unlocked door while everyone was gone and just stayed very quiet until later that night. Hiding in the attic until everyone went to sleep would make perfect sense. He would already be upstairs where he could then quietly creep out of the attic, kill the adults, and then the children. And had he done that, he wouldn't have known that Lena and Ina Stillinger were downstairs, still in the guest bedroom, sleeping. It's thought that he killed Lena and Ina last, 
And the reason why we think that is because this is where he left the bloody axe. It would make sense that the axe would be left in whatever room the final killings took place. So to recap so far, what we think is that the killer knew the Moors would be at church until later in the evening. He also knew that the town would be extra dark that night because the streetlights were all out in town. This may or may not have affected the killer's decision to murder the family on that particular night, but it certainly wouldn't hurt a killer's plan to have it be a little darker than usual as they prowled through the night. The killer probably snuck into the house while the family was gone, waited in the attic smoking until the family was asleep. JB and Sarah Moore were probably killed first before killing the Moore children next. The killer was most likely taken by surprise finding two additional children in the house that he didn't expect to be there when he was walking downstairs getting ready to clean up. Lena Stillinger, age 12, and Ina Stillinger, age 8, should not have been in the Moore house on the evening of June 9th, 1912, and that's what makes this story all the more heartbreaking. Lena and Ina were the daughters of Joseph and Sarah Stillinger. They had seven sisters, and their mother was pregnant at the time of their death. Sadly, she would not only lose Lena and Ina, but also the baby she was carrying at the time of their deaths due to the immense stress that she endured. Lena and Ina are thought to be the final victims in the house. The killer first murdered the younger sister, Ina, and then struck the axe over Lena's head. However, it was determined that Lena woke up prior to dying. She had a defensive wound on her arm, indicating that she may have tried to fight off her attacker. Sadly, she wouldn't win that fight. Lena was found, pulled partially down the bed, legs hanging off to the side. Her nightgown was pulled up to her chest, and she was not wearing any undergarments. Her legs were spread apart, and a kerosene lantern was still burning next to her body in the killer's effort to get a better look at the young girl. There was a blood smear inside Lena's right knee, and it's very likely she was sexually assaulted by her attacker either before or after her death. The sun would rise on Villisca, Iowa the morning of June 10th over a town that would be forever changed. Neighbor Mary Peckham got up at the crack of dawn to hang laundry on the clothesline and found it immediately unusual to see no activity coming from the normally busy Moore house. Working on her own homestead, doing chores both inside and out, Mary would grow more and more puzzled as the clock ticked by that morning with no sign of the Moore family anywhere. By 8 a.m., Mary Peckham had a sinking feeling that something just wasn't right next door. She knocked on the door with no answer. So at that time, she began doing a few essential things that the Moores would normally have done hours ago on a morning like this, such as tending to the chickens, feeding the animals, and things like that. As Mary Peckham was getting more and more worried, she even tried opening the doors to the Moore house, but they were all locked, and this put her over the top with worry. She rang for J.B. Moore's brother, Ross, telling him something was going on next door, but that she didn't know what. 
she asked him to come over and check on the family. And he did. Like Mary, he knocked, tried to open the door and all of that, but nothing. He finally started going through his key ring to see if maybe he had a key that could get him inside. And yes, he did. He unlocked the house and went inside alone while Mary stayed safe outside the door. The house was eerily still, quiet and dark. He immediately noticed that all of the curtains had been tightly drawn and covered with additional items of clothing to block out any light that could seep in, making the small house seem all the more stifling. Darkness and silence surrounded J.B. Moore's brother. When he opened the bedroom door, Ross saw two bodies on the bed and dark stains on the bedclothes. He returned immediately to the porch and told Mrs. Peckham to call the sheriff. The two bodies in the room downstairs were Lena and Ina Stillinger. The remaining members of the Moore family were found in the upstairs bedrooms by City Marshal Hank Horton, who arrived shortly on the scene. Every person in the house had been brutally murdered, and these findings would set into place one of the most mismanaged murder investigations ever to be undertaken. Once the murders were discovered, news traveled quickly in the small town. As neighbors and curious onlookers converged on the house, law enforcement officials quickly lost control of the crime scene. It's said that up to a hundred people traipsed through the house gawking at the bodies before the Villisca National Guard finally arrived around noon to cordon off the area and secure the home. The only known facts of the crime scene were that eight people had been bludgeoned to death, presumably with an axe left at the crime scene. It appeared all of them had been asleep at the time of the murders, Doctors estimated the time of death as somewhere shortly after midnight. Curtains were drawn on all of the windows in the house except two which didn't have curtains. Those windows were covered with clothing belonging to the Moors. All of the victims' faces were covered with bedclothes after they were killed. A kerosene lamp was found at the foot of the bed of Josiah and Sarah, a similar lamp was found at the foot of the bed of the Stillinger girls. The axe was also found in the Stillinger girls' room. It was bloody, but an attempt had been made to wipe it off. This axe belonged to Josiah Moore. An odd piece of keychain was found on the floor in the downstairs bedroom, and a pan of bloody water was discovered on the kitchen table, as well as a plate of uneaten food. All the doors were locked from the inside. Had these murders been committed today, it's almost certain that law enforcement officials would have easily solved the crime and brought the murderer to justice. Almost 100 years later, however, the Velisca Axe murders still remain a mystery. The murderer or murderers would be dead by now, and their gruesome secret would be buried with them. While no one was ever convicted of the Velisca Axe murders, there seemed to be no shortage of suspects. In the days following the crimes, you could have read about at least four possibilities in any edition of the newspaper. 
Many of the leads, however, were quickly exhausted, and as time wore on, they began to dwindle. Today, historians and those who have studied the axe murders extensively seem to be made up of three camps. There are many who believe Frank Jones, a prominent Villisca resident and Iowa State Senator, was responsible for the brutal deaths of the Moors and the Stillinger children. Others adamantly insist that the crazed Reverend George Kelly was the culprit. Still others believe the Moore murders were the work of someone totally unrelated to the town of Villisca, a possible traveler or serial killer. People have many other suspects in mind for this case, but these were the three main ones. Frank Jones was a Villisca resident and an Iowa State Senator. Josiah Moore had worked for Frank Jones at his implement store for many years before leaving to open his own store. Moore repeatedly took business away from Frank Jones, including a very successful John Deere dealership. And Josiah Moore was rumored to have had a sexual affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, though no evidence supports this. Were these bad business dealings and a potential affair enough motive for murder? Many people think yes, but many people also think Reverend George Kelly was responsible for the murders. Kelly was an English-born traveling minister in town on the night of the murders. He was described as peculiar, reportedly having suffered a mental breakdown as an adolescent. As an adult, he was accused of being a peeping Tom and several times asking young women and girls to pose nude for him. On June 8, 1912, he came to Villisca to teach at the Children's Day Services, which the Moore and Stillinger families attended on June 12, 1912. He left town between 5 a.m. and 5.50 a.m. on June 10, 1912, hours before the bodies were discovered. Reverend Kelly even confessed to the murders in court, but the jury didn't believe his confession. In the weeks following the murders, he displayed a fascination with the case and wrote many letters to the police, investigators, and family of the deceased. In 1917, Kelly was even arrested for the Villisca Axe murders. Police obtained a confession from him. However, it followed many hours of intense interrogation, and later, Kelly recanted. After two separate trials, he was acquitted. And finally, in their 2017 book, The Man from the Train, Bill James and his daughter, Rachel McCarthy James, discussed the Velisca Axe murders as part of a much larger series of murders, which they believe were all committed by one single serial killer. They conclude that the murderer was Paul Mueller, an immigrant, possibly from Germany, who was the subject of an unsuccessful year-long manhunt as the sole suspect in the 1897 murder of a family in West Brookfield, Massachusetts, who had employed him as a farmhand. The co-authors of the book believe that Mueller was guilty of the Villisca Axe murders, as well as a killing spree that lasted over a decade, killing at least 59 people in 14 separate incidents, including Colorado Springs and Paola. The Jameses identify common features to the crimes, many of which are also found at the Villisca scene. The killer selected families who lived near railroad tracks. 
He seemingly ambushed the victims at about midnight while they were asleep, used the blunt side of an axe rather than the blade to strike the victims in the head and face, used an axe that was found at their home, and left it in plain sight. He also covered all of his victims with blankets to prevent blood spatter. He covered windows from the inside of the house and locked doors before his departure. In Mueller's suspected crimes, there was often, but not always, a sexual motive directed towards a prepubescent girl, which would explain why Lena was partly disrobed. So who was responsible for the Villisca Axe murders? To this day, we still don't know, but there was a strong possibility that a serial killer was actually at work. To this day, the location of the brutal 1912 murders is known simply as the Villisca Axe Murder House and the walls still protect the identity of the murderer or murderers who bludgeoned to death the entire family and two overnight guests over 100 years ago. To many people, it seems as though the house is trying to speak to them. Visits by paranormal investigators have provided audio, video, and photographic proof of paranormal activity. Tours of the home have often been cut short by children's voices, falling lamps, moving ladders, and flying objects. Psychics have stated that there's a presence of spirits dwelling in the home, and many have claimed to communicate with them. Skeptics have come into the home and left believers. Who killed the victims of the Velisca Axe murders? And is the house haunted? You can find out for yourself. Your belief may be the key that unlocks the door to the Velisca Axe murder mystery, and you can even stay there overnight. For history buffs, the faint of heart, schools, clubs, or just curious people, the Velisca Axe murder house is open for daytime tours. Or if you're really brave, you can rent the entire home for an overnight tour. I will be going for the second year in a row with a group of podcasters to do just this. So stay tuned for our full report. I'm Kelly Barons-Brink, and this has been tonight's True Crime Sleep Story. Good night, sleep tight, and don't let the monsters bite. Bye-bye.